Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit World Wars podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and we are dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. In this episode, we're digging back through the Dan Snow's History Hit archive, and we're pulling out a brilliant podcast, one on the secret British operation to get America into World War II. Dan hears about the life of William Stevenson, a British operative who worked hard to pressure Roosevelt into declaring war on Nazi Germany. It turns out he was a duplicitous and a tricky kind of guy who aggressively used misinformation to ensure he achieved his aims and got American troops in the war directed against German forces in mainland Europe. He reached deep into the inner workings of the US political system, manipulating the president and US politicians. This is an amazing episode. It has Henry Hemming, the brilliant author and historian, who's written the new book, Our Man in New York. I know you're going to love it. Enjoy. Thank you very much for coming back on the show. Dan, it's a pleasure. No, the pleasure is all mine because you are one of the best (laughs) storytellers out there. Your new book, I mean, it couldn't be more timely. Foreign Interference in US Domestic Politics. You couldn't make it up. It's um, it's a story which I think will remain timely, I think, for years to come. I mean, we live in an age of influence campaigns, as I increasingly am realising. And this is a book about the original influence campaign. It was run by the British during the Second World War. But we're also, I think, today more vulnerable than ever before to influence campaigns. Usually when we hear about these things, we don't get to hear what it's like to be inside one. The story's told from the outside looking in. There's no insider account of, uh, let's say, the St. Petersburg troll farm. And I hope what this book, Our Man in New York, will do is allow people to see what it's like to be inside, at the epicentre of one of these influence campaigns. So I hope it's an important story, but also maybe a gripping one and exciting. Why was Britain seeking to exert influence on our great and Britain's greatest allies, special relationship, best buddies, Anglophone, you know, <laughs> hands reaching across the Atlantic? What was what was Britain hoping to achieve, and how how underhand was it? Very is what I would say. I mean, what were they trying to achieve? The influence campaign really begins in the summer of 1940, and there is one thing they were desperately trying to achieve at that time, which is a continued run of supplies. They needed American supplies. Large parts of Europe had suddenly become inaccessible. 
without American supplies continuing to come over to Britain, they would be in trouble. They would be unable to continue to wage war against Nazi Germany. And the problem here is that this is a political question, not just one to do with logistics. So opinion polls at the time were not showing that the majority of Americans were desperate to help Britain. Britain had not made the case for it being in need of help. A lot of Americans were actually ambivalent about who should win. There are a lot of people who felt that Germany should win and that Hitler had a perfectly good case for controlling large parts of Europe. We'll get onto that in a moment. So the main thing the British had to do to begin with was just to make sure the supplies continued to come. But nine months into this, by early 1941, the MI6 head of station, a man called Bill Stevenson, realizes there's something more that needs to happen. America must come into the war. And there are two things that he sets out to achieve. I mean, number one, he wants to shift American public opinion. At the time, as I was saying, it was still, you know, ambivalent. It was beginning to move, but slowly, slowly. He wanted to speed that up. But the second thing, and this is what I think is, is provocative. It's certainly one of the things when I was researching the book, I was really surprised by. He wanted to provoke Hitler into a declaration of war on America. And this is one of the things he begins behind the scenes to work towards. You're making him sound pretty important. How high up did it go? Was, was he under instruction from Churchill and, and senior figures back in the UK? Well, this is in a way one of the, the tragedies of this guy, Bill Stevenson. He was important, but later on in life, after he had several strokes, he began to think he was actually more important than he had been. So there was a book. There was a book written back in the uh, late 1970s called A Man Called Intrepid, which did incredibly well. It sold two million copies. And it's basically a hagiography of this man, Bill Stevenson. And it was written by a Canadian author who, who said afterwards, if I'd known how well the book was going to do, I wouldn't have made so much of it up. There's even a rumor I've read somewhere that the book was later reclassified as fiction. But at the time, a lot of people thought it was true. And I'm afraid this book made out that Stevenson was essentially running intelligence operations for the British all over the world, that he was sent by Churchill. He wasn't that he was liaising daily with Roosevelt, he wasn't. And yet, what he was doing behind the scenes was important, it did have an impact. And what I've tried to do in the book is to unpick exactly what's true and what is just a historical bluff. So how does he go about achieving his aim of keeping America on side and, and if possible, bring the America into the war? So he sets up an influence campaign and there are about four different strands to this. At the heart of it, you have a fake news operation. And this is run out of an office in the Rockefeller Center in New York. It's a, it's a big operation. At its peak, it's pumping out 20 false or misleading stories every single day. It is the, the pre-internet equivalent of a troll farm. And uh, you have British agents inside there. You have people outside the office, for example, a celebrity astrologer called Louis DeWall, who was paid quite a large amount by the British to tour the country and make astrological predictions of Hitler's imminent death, which for people who bought into astrological predictions was, was useful, was, was relevant to the British cause. So that's one strand. And what's amazing about this is not just the audacity or the kind of the, the scope, the number of newspapers they're getting stories into, the number of radio stations they're being broadcast on, or the news agencies who are picking it up. It's that on at least three occasions, you have fake British documents produced in this office or elsewhere, which end up on Roosevelt's desk in the White House 
and famously in late October one of these is presented by the President of the United States to the American people as if it were genuine. And this is the, the South American map, which, um, which was great fun to write about in the book. Just quickly tell me about the South American map. This was 27th of October, 1941. Roosevelt gives his Navy Day address. So it's broadcast live across America. You've got about 60 million people listening. The text is soon relayed around the world. In the middle of this speech, he says, I have in my possession a map which proves Hitler has a plan to take over South America. And this map, which later emerged, showed how South America was going to be uh, redivided after a successful Nazi invasion. It even showed Lufthansa routes from Berlin to all the South American capitals. And he produced another document. Roosevelt said, I have a second document, and this shows a Nazi plan to abolish all religion around the world, to replace the words of the Bible with the words of Mein Kampf, to replace the, the cross of, of Christianity with the swastika and so on. And as he says, this is proof that Hitler is trying to, is, is planning to take over the part of the Americas. And it's another reason why we have to go to war. And this obviously has an immediate impact on American public opinion, but it also has an explosive impact in Berlin. So Hitler, eight days later, gives his first speech since that. He can talk of nothing else than these two fakes, because they are fakes, because they were produced by the British. They were actually made in Canada by a team overseen by uh, Eric Mashwitz, the world-famous uh, lyricist, who just written A Nightingale Sings, sang, sorry, in Berkeley Square. So there's a forgery factory in Canada. They're producing these fakes. They send them down to New York. They get to Bill Stevenson. Bill Stevenson then gives them to his, uh, his friend, Wild Bill Donovan, who's running the, uh, he's the coordinator of information. He's, uh, this goes on to become the CIA. He's essentially America's top spook. And Donovan then gives it to Roosevelt. Roosevelt then presents it to the American people. So this is the kind of channel that you have set up. And the reason I'm so taken by this, by this particular map, is the effect it has in Berlin. So Hitler is, is obsessed by this. He can't believe that, the, that Roosevelt has used these two fakes to try and bring his country into the war. And until then, he's always thought he will declare war on America first. But the first time he begins to, to question that is after Roosevelt does this, he realizes he's up against a different kind of adversary, someone who might actually use fake documents to try and bring his country into the war and make a declaration on Hitler with Hitler unaware. And there's a moment later that month, so late November, 41, when Hitler admits in private to Ribbentrop that in fact he now intends to declare war on America. And until then, he's, he's done everything he can to avoid that. The situation on the Eastern Front is not going well. He's always said that America comes after Russia. He doesn't want to be rushed into it. And he's been consistent on that. He's told the head of the, the German Navy, Raider, to hold back and not to create any incidents in the Atlantic because he does not want to deal with America yet. But after this speech, that changes. You then have Pearl Harbor on the 7th of December. And of course, that brings America into the war with Japan. But it does not bring America into the war with Germany. A day goes by, they're still at peace. Another day goes by, they're still at peace. Another day. Four days later, the world knows that Germany is still at peace with America. There's no sign of that changing until Hitler makes this unexpected declaration of war. And he never writes down why he does that. 
But the closest we come to realizing exactly what was going on in his mind is the speech he gives that day in the Reichstag. And it's a long speech. They always are with Hitler. But he talks repeatedly about Roosevelt as a provocateur, as someone who has made baseless allegations, someone who's made shameless misrepresentations of the truth, and someone who is a liar. The last major speech Roosevelt has given is this one about the fake Nazi documents. I would argue that they played a small part in provoking Hitler into this unnecessary declaration of war, which of course changed the course of the Second World War and has been described frequently as one of Hitler's greatest mistakes. As ever, Henry Hemming, it's hard to argue with you, man. That's hard to argue. What an astonishing aspect of the story. Talk to me about the other strands of the influence campaign. Sure. They had, uh, so they had this fake news operation. They were also getting inside pressure groups. So they were authentic American pressure groups. And what Bill Stevenson or people working for him would do was to approach a senior figure in one of these groups and essentially offer to pay a large amount of money to start controlling them. So to start slightly changing the direction. And they did this to eight or nine different pressure groups within America. They then began to set up their own. And what this meant is that most of the pressure groups who are campaigning for coming into the war, they all start to say roughly the same thing at the same time. And it sounds like a small change, but when you're an American reading in the newspapers or listening on the radio and you hear that everyone who's talking about going into the war seems to be singing from the same hymn sheet, it makes a much more convincing argument. Message discipline. Absolutely. I mean, all of these techniques, they're, they're very current. They, uh, they don't really change a great deal. Message discipline, I mean, the importance of timing as well. Even, I mean, in the Russian influence campaign recently, you have what's called a hack, leak, amplifies, the kind of basic technique. The British were doing the same thing back in the early 1940s. So that's, that's one strand. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
you also have then getting inside polling organizations and uh, one of the kind of the, the most well, the best known agents working for Bill Stevenson was a guy called David Ogilvy who goes on to be this big-time advertiser he's described on his death as the uh, the father of advertising and he's someone who was working at the time for Gallup and uh, and he later when he was interviewed about his his war work he's a rather blandly say yes well um, after America came into the war I uh, began to work for British intelligence but I found the evidence that actually he was working for them from late 1940 while he was working inside the Gallup polling organization and he was I'm almost certain, I don't have the actual proof, but I can make a strong circumstantial case. He was adjusting the wording of questions. There are several very oddly worded questions that come out in Gallup polling uh, surveys, which were pro-British, which were trying to force the issue of, should we go to war? Yes, we probably should. So that's one of the other things they're doing. But then the other thing, which I, I mean, I had to, this for me was the most implausible part of this whole story. There are many bits which you have to kind of really, really check. But Stevenson decides in late 1940 that what he really, really needs is for there to be a new kind of American intelligence agency. At the time, you've basically got the FBI, you've got the internal intelligence departments for the military and the Navy, but that's it. And these three intelligence organizations, they're bickering constantly, they're often overlapping, it's, it's a mess. Stevenson realizes there's a gap there's a gap for a new centralized intelligence agency. And he wants his buddy, Wild Bill Donovan, this American lawyer who he befriends quite early on, he wants him in charge. And he starts to lobby for this behind the scenes in New York, in Washington. He gets the British ambassador involved. He gets as many people as he can carefully involved. Everyone who can exert influence on Roosevelt does. And in the summer of 1941, it works. This new intelligence agency comes into being. Wild Bill Donovan is the man in charge. And almost from the day it comes into being, Stevenson is feeding intelligence straight to Donovan. Donovan is then passing this stuff off as if it's coming from his own team of, of agents out in the field. And I've gone through this stuff and it's almost hilarious. I mean, it's completely pro-British. It's talking about some amazing uh, developments in British armaments or technology or logistics. And you'd think anyone seeing this would think, hang on, <laughs> surely, surely his agents in the field might be getting something about anything other than Britain, but no. So for the first three or four months, Donovan's agency is issuing repackaged MI6 material. So Stevenson has not only helped to set up this agency, he's influencing what it's putting out, what is being read in the US government. And all of this stuff is saying, not only are the British doing a great job, but the tide is turning, even though at that time, it wasn't. I mean, it's so spooky hearing you talk about this. And everybody in the world should listen to this podcast and, and, and read this book. Such extraordinary contemporary resonance. It must have, well, a couple of things. One is actually, let's talk about you as a historian. It must have been a bit hard writing this book against the backdrop of Mueller, against Russian interference in the US electorate. Did you worry about your objectivity? Did you think, oh my God, am I just sort of writing this? Is, it, is this a book that has to, is going to, in 20 years' time, will be so obviously written in 2018, 2019. <laughs> oh, yes and no. I mean, it's certainly the reason I began to start writing the book, one of them, was the revelations about what Mueller began to then investigate. In other words, the Russian influence campaign. And I mean, I think what it does is it, it focuses a lot of people's attention on the idea that there is such a thing as an influence campaign and just what it can achieve. The Cambridge Analytica revelations only confirms that in, in the months subsequent to that. 
And the Mueller investigation has been intriguing. It certainly made it part of the, the news agenda in America. I think there's still more to come out about this. But what a lot of, what a lot of people fail to really focus on is that Mueller is only talking about collusion between Trump and the Russian campaign. And caught up in this is, is the fact that nobody's really questioning whether or not there was a Russian campaign. There was, and as Mueller acknowledges, it had an impact. There's a brilliant book by Kathleen Jameson, which has come out recently called Cyber War. She's a political scientist, one of the leading figures in her field. She's been looking at elections and influence um, throughout her career. She argues very carefully that this Russian influence campaign probably did have a decisive impact on the American election. And of course, a lot of people, it's hard to see this outside of a partisan lens. You assume that if you say it did, you've got to be a bleeding heart Democrat. And uh, if it didn't, then you're on the other side. But um, it's, a, yeah, it's a convincing argument. I'd recommend that book. How decisive was the British influence campaign in the build-up to Hitler's declaration of war against the United States? I wouldn't exaggerate it. I wouldn't say it was utterly decisive. I'd say it played a meaningful part, and I think nothing more. It, uh, it certainly played a part, I think, in Hitler's unnecessary declaration of war against America. But what it also did was it helped to swing American public opinion. And you also have a lot of Americans, a lot of East Coasters, a lot of wealthy activists who are pouring money, energy, and, and time into this, who are making the same case. They're often working with the British. So the British are, are part of a broader campaign, but they're helping to, to focus it. They're helping to concentrate it. They're supplying a lot of money. They're supplying expertise a lot of the time. They're making connections between people within this interventionist campaign. And what that does, so shifting American public opinion, it means that when Roosevelt finally, finally comes into the war against not just Japan, but also Germany, very soon after, he can make what should have been a shocking announcement, where he says it is our military strategy not to go after Japan first. We're going after Germany first and then Japan. And Japan is the country that's attacked America. Germany has done almost nothing. And yet, because public opinion by that point is so convinced that Berlin, Hitler, Nazi Germany, that they represent the major enemy, he can get away with it. And had Pearl Harbor happened a year before, I don't think he could have done. Was there collusion? <laughs> I mean, you mentioned, of course, this collusion between, between like-minded people, these activists that were looking to get American for war. Was there collusion with the US government, with the president? Yes, there was, um, without a doubt. And uh, I mean, I, I mentioned this map earlier. Roosevelt presents this map to the American people. The question is, did he, did he know? Did he know this was a British fake or had he just been duped? And that's a big question. I mean, if he knew it was a British fake, he was, it's an impeachable offence. He's colluding with a foreign nation in order to mislead the American people. He's using a distinctly presidential, well, his presidential office to do this. There were, I mean, there were three things that, that really stand out. The liaison between Wild Bill and Bill Stevenson. So essentially the CIA and MI6 was a man called Jimmy Roosevelt, who is Roosevelt's son. He's the guy who is overseeing exactly what goes between the two. There's a moment when one American official, a guy called Adolf Burley, who is a great character to write about in the book, he's someone who throughout 41, he's aware of what the British are doing. He slowly finds out more and more and more, and he's determined to shut this down. And he's a senior civil servant. He's a friend of Roosevelt's. And there's a moment in just a couple of weeks before Roosevelt makes a speech 
when Burley storms into the Oval Office and he says, I have proof, I have proof here, and he presents the document to Roosevelt. I have proof of three occasions in the last couple of months when the British have been trying to do something really particular. They've been trying to convince the world using fake documents that the Nazis are going to invade South America. Here's the proof. And the account of this meeting is extraordinary because Burley says, yes, Roosevelt was strangely unmoved. He um, eventually cautiously said, well, maybe I'll get someone to look into it. Then a couple of weeks later, Roosevelt is presented with this fake document which shows a Nazi invasion of South America. Not only does he not question it, in the speech he gives about this, he says, this is bound to be questioned by Berlin. Berlin are bound to dismiss this as a fake, which is an unusual thing to do if you have something you believe to be utterly genuine. So I think on several counts, there is a very compelling case to say that he knew. And there are other cases, which I won't get into now, where he actually asked Wild Bill Donovan to produce something fake. And he knew that Wild Bill Donovan used MI6 to get it done. So yeah, there was. So Roosevelt commits impeachable offences. There you go. <laughs> Hemming. Without a doubt. Slaying all the big... That is remarkable. Um, just to come back to the British government's attitude to this, were they, were they thrilled that their man in, in New York was, was doing this? Or were they, they cautious? Or what, what was the pressure on Bill Stevenson from London? That's a, I mean, it's an interesting question. There's no short answer. In the, in the, kind of the, the decades that followed, there was this idea that Stevenson himself liked to put about this. Sort of Churchill was overseeing it and he, he knew exactly what was going on. That's not the case. The head of MI6 and the head of SOE knew about some of what Stevenson was doing, but not all. There was also a story where Stevenson liked to put out later about how he kind of, he broke with MI6 and he broke with SOE and he just did his own thing. And yes, there were maverick qualities to this man. There were maverick qualities to his operation, but it, it has been exaggerated. So MI6, they knew about a lot of what was going on. They approved it, they were still funding it. SOE was also pouring a huge amount of money into this. So it's a bit of one and a bit of another. And lastly, once Britain had achieved its aim and it got America into the war against uh, Germany, did this influence campaign stop? No, <laughs> but it stopped very soon after it. I mean, the, the cover-up campaign begins only a few weeks after that. And uh, I mean, they talk about what they tried to do is, was make sure that American morale continued to be you know, focused on the war effort. But essentially, the American attitude to what the British were doing changed completely. There were a lot of Americans in senior positions who were aware of roughly what Stevenson was doing, and they were prepared to tolerate it in the months leading up to Pearl Harbor because they themselves were desperate for America to come into the war. But the attitude shifts dramatically in the, in the weeks and months that followed. And a lot of the, uh, the agents that Stevenson has on his books, they get transferred over to Wild Bill Donovan's outfit, the precursor of the CIA. So um, yeah, it takes a few months, but then it begins to, uh, to wind down. So how ironic, as they become formal allies, they start working together less. <laughs> very bizarre. Henry Hemming, thank you very much for coming onto this podcast again. You're a total legend. What is the book called? Our Man in New York, and it's out now. Couldn't be a more important time to read this book. Thank you. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. And before you go, remember as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully uninterrupted, ad free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War, and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.